Welcome to the 166th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of the social sciences and COVID-19 with Alondra Nelson. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 10th, 2020, there are 1,263,089 deaths from COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 10,110,252 cases in the United States, and there are now a total of 238,863 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 237,742. Another day with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now the headline is the coronavirus has claimed 2.5 million years of potential life in the United States, study finds. This is by Catherine J. Wu and appeared in the New York Times October 21st. In less than a year, the coronavirus has killed more than 220,000 Americans. This article appeared uh, last month. But even that staggering number downplays the true toll of the pandemic, according to a recent analysis. Every death represents years of potential life lost, years that might otherwise have been filled with rich memories of family, friends, productivity, and joy. Trips to the grocery store, late night conversations on the phone, tearful firsts with a newborn baby. Think of everything that a person does in a year, said Stephen Elledge, a geneticist at Harvard. Who among us would not give anything to have one more year with a parent, a spouse, a son, or daughter, a close friend? In the new analysis, which has not yet been published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, Dr. Elledge added up those years. He tabulated the ages of Americans known to have died of COVID-19 and tallied the number of years they might have lived had they reached a typical life expectancy. His calculations show that the coronavirus has claimed more than 2.5 million years of potential life in the United States since the start of 2020. Nearly half of those years were taken from people under the age of 65. The numbers, Dr. Elledge said, magnify a dimension of the pandemic's toll that can't be captured by absolute deaths alone and underscore the importance of taming the virus to protect everyone regardless of age. These are everyday people who are dying, said Dr. Utibe Essien, a physician and health equity researcher at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine who was not involved in the analysis. They're losing time with their kids, their grandkids, their opportunities to build their futures. Dr. Essien was one of the several experts who reviewed the study at the request of the New York Times. About 80% of the Americans who have died from the coronavirus were over 65, but younger people are still vulnerable to the worst effects of the virus, which when they prove lethal, can cleave several decades from a lifespan. A new paper estimates that over 
10.2.5 million years of potential life have been lost. Such statistics have only grown in importance as case numbers and deaths among younger people continue to rise. The pandemic has driven a 26.5% jump in excess deaths in people ages 25 to 44, an increase higher than that of any other age group, according to data released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Although older people account for most of the confirmed deaths related to the coronavirus, that isn't the only way to look at it, Dr. Elledge said. Limited demographic data have been collected about coronavirus-related deaths, which are challenging to accurately estimate, especially while the pandemic is still underway. But Dr. Elledge was able to put together a tally by pulling data from the CDC website and actuarial records. Despite making up only one-fifth of the total recorded deaths related to COVID-19, people under 65 accounted for nearly 1.2 million years of potential life that had been lost to the virus. Older people made up the remaining 1.4 million years in Dr. Elledge's count. Since January, the coronavirus has killed about 43,000 Americans under the age of 65, all of them too young to qualify for Medicare. Roughly 2,000 of them were younger than 35, and hundreds had not yet turned 25, too young even to legally rent a car. This is humanizing, said Nadia Abuelazam, an epidemiologist at Boston College who was not involved in the analysis, it makes it much more about how it could impact my lived experiences, my opportunities, my ability to be around the people I love. Even losses enumerated by life years do not represent the full costs exacted by the pandemic, said Maimuna Majumder, an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital at Harvard Medical School, who was not involved in the analysis. Researchers still do not fully understand the long-term repercussions of a coronavirus infection, which can throw the body into flux for months, perhaps longer, even often with debilitating symptoms. Deaths are also not distributed uniformly across the population. Age is certainly one factor that can influence an individual's risk. Dr. Elledge's analysis also showed that men who tend to fare worse against the coronavirus had lost more potential years of life than women. The pandemic had also has also had a disproportionate impact on Black, Latino, Indigenous, and Native people who are more likely to contract the coronavirus and to become severely sick and die once an infection sets in. Roughly one in 920 Black Americans has died from the coronavirus compared with one in 1,840 white Americans, according to one analysis. Another recent assessment found that the pandemic has more severely reduced life expectancies among Black and Latino populations compared with white neighbors. Black Americans already have lower life expectancies than white Americans. Dr. Elledge's analysis did not break down potential life years lost by race and ethnicity, although he said he planned to investigate. Some of these calculations were tackled by another assessment published in June, which focused on younger Americans who had died from the virus and added up the number of years they might have lived had they reached 65. That analysis found younger Americans who identified as Black and Latino had lost roughly 94,000 years of life to the coronavirus. Younger white Americans who account for a far larger share of the U.S. population had lost about 33,000. Race and ethnicity data on coronavirus-related deaths remains lacking in many respects, making such estimates difficult. Still, race, ethnicity, age, social status, and health inevitably intersect, several experts noted. Without accounting for and capturing these relationships, Dr. Ebuelazam said, we cannot get a full picture.
Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. And I'm delighted to host Alondra Nelson and let me introduce her now. Alondra Nelson is president of the Social Science Research Council and Harold F. Linder, professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. She's an acclaimed researcher and author who explores questions of science, technology, and social inequality. Nelson's books include Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination, and The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. She's co-editor of Genetics and the Unsettled Past, The Collision of DNA, Race, and History with Keith Waylou and Catherine Lee. Nelson serves on the Board of Trustees of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the Russell Sage Foundation, and on the Board of Directors of the Teagle Foundation and the Data and Society Research Institute. She is an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, and the National Academy of Medicine. Alondra Nelson, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Great to see you, Scott. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Uh, I love that you start with this question because the last nine months have been so virtual for all of us. So the materiality of where we are, I think is so important. Um, I am in Princeton, New Jersey and my office at the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, you know, things are okay here, uh, but we know that the rates are are uh, rising uh, quickly um, in the New York uh, metropolitan area. So um, like you, I probably, you know, we're kind of all sentinels right now, kind of watching to see what happens and, um, uh, you know, anticipating that fall's gonna be pretty tough. So among the many reasons I was excited to talk to you today is your book, The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. And especially given the ways that racial inequality and disease have intersected in, in this pandemic, I guess I wanted to ask you kind of a broad question to start, which is what are you learning right now in these past few months about the structures of inequality in America? And I ask this because I think Everyone, it's been a steep learning curve for many people who didn't maybe understand or had never thought about the ways that inequality and disease intersect in America. But even for people who've spent their careers studying these kinds of issues, there's a lot of learning happening right now. So I guess I'd like to see what you're learning. Well, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we're learning is, you know, this, uh, the kind of aphorisms often used, you know, when African Americans, um, you know, uh, uh, when, when the rest of America has a cough, African Americans have a cold or a fever, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that we, you know, we know from um, the history of health inequality that it is a mainstay of African American life, unfortunately. Um, and so we're not learning anything new, um, I think, about black communities um, in particular in that way, only that yet again, uh, that particular kind of vulnerabilities um, and, uh, and social shocks create disproportionate effects um, for African American communities. Um, so we are seeing that brought to bear, um, I think, more starkly, um, uh, but we're also seeing it brought to bear more broadly in other communities as well. Um, and the, the sort of you know, vastness um, uh, and the implications of the pandemic has meant that, you know, communities that often don't have to face um, health inequality in quite the kind of pronounced stark ways that um, Black communities have for a very long time 
or experiencing it. So um, it's becoming a, a more widespread phenomenon. But I would also, I would say what I think might feel um, new to some of us, and I think that's been true through, um, but that has been important for all of my work is the way in which um, health, the public health system and um, hospitals have always been these kind of total institutions for African-Americans and a kind of Goffmanian way. And so, um, and, you know, not obviously different in mission and kind from jails and prisons and these sorts of things, but, you know, places where one could, uh, that were carceral and experience for, for people of color and for African-Americans in particular. Um, you know, certainly thinking about my Black Panther book, there's you know, one of the, the sort of cases for arguments for why healthcare becomes important to the Black Panther Party activists is in part because of their own, I think, experiences of neglect, um, but also of surveillance of sort of healthcare workers, healthcare professionals being involved in a kind of carceral surveillance apparatus around their lives. And so um, when you think about that, you know, more than 50 years ago to have um, the kind of constellation of health inequality, of disease, um, and of kind of punitive treatment, um, you know, healthcare as surveillance, as ultimate, uh, you know, um, potentially punitive treatment um, that, you know, is carrying forward, um, uh, you know, things that have existed for, for a long time. There's uh, been a sort of an undercurrent um, through some of this, and it, I guess it was a little bit stronger <clears throat> back in March and April and May, uh, that you might even call a sort of proto-eugenics kind of discussion that, well, essential workers are getting sick at higher rates, and, and those are people who already maybe have lower health attainment in America, as a code to talk about race. Or, as the Lieutenant Governor of Texas said, well, older folks dying in nursing homes, you know, it's very hard to keep them healthy anyway. I, were you struck to see a resurgence of this kind of language and discussion in this moment of sort of maximum vulnerability for the American population? Sadly, no. Um, but because I've been studying genetics, I'll, you know, even the Black Panther book is, is in fact about genetics and race to some degree. So <clears throat> it's something that I've been, you know, sort of tracking for a very long time. And I, I think this is actually the, the type of instance, the type of kind of social shock in which you're more likely to see it because it is so inexplicable. It is so confusing, confounding. Um, it is so disruptive of every sphere of life. And <clears throat> part of the power of, of genetics uh, as a narrative that is that it's a simple story to explain life. It's a wrong story, but it, it's simple, right? You know, someone can attribute, you know, cause to, to something. So I think given where, you know, given how genetics has been really kind of re-emerging in the late 20th and early 21st century and giving the complexity of a story that disrupted everything in our lives for which we were seeking a simple answer. Genetics is the perfect candidate for that, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, it's always been the case that genetics has, uh, you know, part of the simple answer it's supposed to offer us is about inequality, right? So it can't possibly be the case that, um, you know, it's that we've, we've got threadbare social welfare institutions or that people are treated unfairly when they're triaged, or, um, you know, or that people don't have access to healthcare. It must be something that's inherently about them. Um, and so uh, you add to that race, ethnicity, 
you know, um, people who are under-resourced and that's just a kind of perfect storm. But of course, you know, um, and I wrote this, I, I, I reviewed for Nature a couple of months ago, uh, um, uh, a book um, uh, um, by Adam Rutherford, which is about the kind of narratives around genetics and, and race. And, you know, one of the things that I, I said there is that, you know, it, it is not a coincidence that people who are suffering disproportionate effects of um, death and, you know, acute experience of COVID-19 um, are effectively oppressed populations in different communities. So, um, you know, in the UK, it's, you know, people of Pakistani origin. Um, in New Zealand, it's people of Southeast, of, of you know, Polynesian origin, um, similarly in Southern California. Um, you know, in Greece, it's the Roma community. So, um, you know, so there's, so there, if, if there's an inheritance there that is shared among all of these groups, that inheritance is discrimination and the experience of discrimination and how that comes to be in, embodied um, and, and, and one's body and then access to healthcare. It, it's so striking and so, and I, you know, just to hear you explain it and say you're not necessarily surprised, um, but you know, when, when you do have these what seemingly quite clinical and sometimes I think very well-meaning discussions about pre-existing conditions which make people vulnerable to a virus and there's a lot of sense making going on in the Anytime there's a disaster, certainly something of this scale, but you're you're right next door to this set of assumptions about well, what makes a population vulnerable in the in the first place, and to somehow pretend like that isn't political or that doesn't tap into history is really is really distressing. Uh, it's really concerning. I mean, the disability studies community, and I've talked with several folks on COVID calls about this, have were you know ringing the fire bell in the night from the very beginning saying it's not, you wait and see it's not going to be long before they're going to be saying we cannot accommodate you and then if there's rationing of health care well who's going to be rationed first no i mean very early on there were you know press accounts of um you know uh people with special needs on the autism spectrum you know particularly when you have um you know we know for uh, folks for certain communities how important it is to have a health advocate with you even under like normative conditions to have someone to, you know, speak for you, to advocate for you um, in the context of this, you know, very powerful um, institution. And uh, so you imagine people being alone, they're not allowed to have advocates with them. They can't speak. They don't, you know, they're not, they don't speak clearly or in a way that, that people sort of um, uh, understand readily. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of early, um, conversation that's gone a bit underground, but I'm sure is still happening as we hear, you know, today places like, I think it's, you know, South Dakota, Utah, hospitals at capacity. I mean, there are people right now making decisions about the value of human, different human lives. Um, and, you know, too often uh, the shorthand for that uh, is about ability, is about uh, race and ethnicity. I want to ask you a question about reparations. Uh, it's an issue you've been following and writing about um, for a long time. And, you know, in your, in your book, The Social Life of DNA, I mean, you talk about the, the way that genetics was used, attempted to be used um, as a grounds upon which to make a case, a scientific case for reparations um, without success in American courts up to this point. And, and that discussion has returned um, with a vengeance this year uh, with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement 
I, I wonder if you see this year as somehow a possibility uh, turning the page on that discussion, bringing it back to the fore in American life, either connected with or or not connected with the the DNA claim. Yeah, so it, I think it always, when it comes, you know, back on the scene that the reparations, um, you know, politics and the case for reparations, it always feels like it's, you know, gone away, you know, but I think it's probably better to think of it as, um, and I think I use this description in my book, as a drumbeat that's been beating for over 150 years. And so reparations politics and advocacy and activism around reparations has never gone away. I mean, there's a, there's a, a rich genealogy of um, social movements and activist groups who've just been working together over time to make the case. So I think the strategies and the tactics that different groups use over time have changed, you know, is one going to go um, to uh, the United Nations and charge that genocide is being perpetuated against black communities and therefore reparations are owed are one, you know, are people going to try as, as was the case in the 1990s to have, uh, you know, white shoe lawyers at Harvard University trying to sort of, um, you know, elevate um, the case of reparations to a, a kind of elite um, legal discourse conversation or the case in which I write about in which, um, this new technology, uh, direct-to-consumer genetics, is on the scene not even for a year. And reparations activists, people who had been already um, in the movement, say, you know, let, why don't we, does this new technology offer us an, another way to make the case? And so until there is some resolution, people will always be making the case. And I think that, uh, you know, certainly what this year has shown us is that, um, that some real transformative work has to happen in American society. Uh, these issues are not going away. We can wish them away. We can hope them away. I mean, I don't, but I, you know, I'm being a, a bit glib here. Um, but like, actually, some real kind of transformative conversation needs to take place. And so, I'm hopeful that you know something like HR 40 might happen, which was um, the late John Conyers bill that he tried, you know, just to get a conversation about the history of slavery. Um, that's actually a, a very modest um, and, you know, it was a very modest ask. And and so, uh, you know, I think that um, it's the kind of return of the repressed again and again, and that we will keep living in this loop uh, until we're willing actually to um, have the hard conversations and being actually willing to um, be honest about the foundations of American society and what it might mean for, and what that means, the implications of that. Um, and, and some of the implications of that are that there are, you know, that, that some restitution is owed um, mm -hmm. to, to the descendants of slaves. I was, I was thinking about that too in the, in the context of all of the ambiguity around testing more generally this year. Because, you know, when you try to introduce, when you have a long, and thank you for that, that sort of telling of that sort of long history of the claim for reparations, as you say, it's rediscovered from time to time, maybe even the mainstream, but it's always there, that um, if you try to make a genetic test be the new sort of core of that, then you're facing this sort of conundrum of carrying that out. It's just a massive logistical task and it's uh, deeply scientific and somehow it's also going to have a lot of ambiguities to it. And of course, I've been, you know, in, in terms of the COVID-19 testing this year, first of all, the inaccessibility of testing for many people, false positives, false negatives, people who recover before they get a chance to get a test and a hundred other permutations 
of that. That's been on my mind, thinking about those parallels there. as Because if having had COVID-19 in a documentable way, I think the assumption has been that that should enable certain kinds of claims to care. And that may also not be a good assumption. So I guess I'm just trying to draw out some of these parallels and, with you and see what you think about them. Interesting. I mean, I think that I think that the the parallel that comes to mind for me is um, in the early days of the pandemic. Um, you know, all of the conversations and debates about modeling, because a test is a kind of model in a way, right? And in material kind of microcosm form. And so, I think the debates about what model is better and who's making the right assumptions. You know, there are um, assumptions that go into the forms of testing. I would say with the, the direct to consumer genetic testing, I mean, I think the thing that makes it both similar and different, particularly as you probably know more about this than, than I, but I've been following a little bit the emergence of these um, at home direct to consumer COVID tests. And so, you know, that I think is a more, um, uh, you know, a more kind of even analog that's worth worth talking about. But, you know, in the early days, it was fascinating. Like, what are we testing for? What is the, you know, is it RNA? Is it antibodies? Um, similar with the vaccine. What does the vaccine suppress, mitigate, you know, um, all of these sort of different questions. And so I think to the extent that, you um, testing as a kind of model of what a disease is and what one is looking for to say that one has or does not have disease really brought, I think, the contingency of, of, of what testing can tell us to the fore, much like the kind of debates around modeling. Um, and that, on the one hand, I mean, as a teacher, I think maybe you'll agree, that's a, it's a good thing for people to be thinking, to, to have the black box opened about what tests are, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, the downside of that um, is the way in which it might contribute to a kind of vaccine hesitation, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. if tests are debatable and all up in the open and, um, you know, uh, the seams are showing and we see how they're, they're made and what they can tell us and not tell us, you know, what good are they at all? And so, you know, that's the, to the, to the you know, wrong extreme, uh, I think, uh, with the sort of testing conundrum. everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Alondra Nelson today. Uh, Alondra, I, I, there was a, I was reading an interview you gave and just to sort of bring this back into the realm of politics a little bit here, I'm going to give a little quote from this interview. You said, you're talking about bioethics and some of the challenges of ethics um, this year. Um, and you were just mentioning the vaccine issue a minute ago. So um, you said, my frustration with bioethics, this detachment when these are really issues about policy decisions, about power, about government incompetence, about a lack of federal coordination, it comes down to one person's decision about what life is worth living. But wouldn't it be so much better if a country this wealthy and this well-resourced had been able to provide people everything that they could possibly need to foster health to make these life and death decisions as rare as possible? Uh, there's a lot in there. In a sense, you sort of open up the whole political economy for us in the midst of of this pandemic. And, and I guess, you know, we are, there is a, a new president, there's a president elect, 
there will be a transfer of power. Um, the task force is formed. Mm -hmm. um, and so one likes to think that these kinds of considerations that you were talking about in that in that interview are back on the table. I think they were not on the table at top policy levels, or if they were, they were not listened to. Um, what kind of clues will you be looking for that these kinds of issues would be taking be, being taken seriously by an incoming administration? How can that kind of discourse get fired up? Because it needs to, and it needs to happen fast, I think. Yeah, I mean, first, let me put that quote in a little bit of, of context, which was, um, I believe it was in reference to, um, uh, you know, whether or not bioethics was the kind of um, moral infrastructure that we needed when people are faced with uh, decisions about kind of scarcity and, and, you know, and it's left to kind of individuals to make choices about other people's lives. And so I think what has been um, uh, the, the, the sort of one of the more challenging things about this pandemic is that we have something that's impacting communities, you know, populate at a, you know, at a population level on a global scale. Um, and the United States response for the most part has been to revert to something like individual responsibility. So it's the individual responsibility of the triage nurse who's supposed to decide to make the right bioethical call of, you know, who gets what access to what resources or not. It's the individual responsibility of, you know, people to have, you know, resources to create pods for their children so they get education. Sort of everything is turned back on the individual and nothing is left to the community um, or to the kind of commons or the common good. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, that, that part of that political economy that I was trying to to sort of um, raise to the fore there is that to me, this is an issue of political economy. It's not an issue of of even healthcare so much of it as it is of, um, I think, uh, constituting this as a problem of the commons and uh, creating, you know, the access to resources that, that help that to be the case. And when I say, you know, that doesn't, resources for people to thrive, you know, I'm not saying um, that everyone should be, you know, have wealthy and abundant lives, but I, I think that, you know, there should be a bottom, there should be, uh, you know, a, a level at which all human beings should be able to live and thrive. And this is the United States as a, as a community, a national community, well worth, you know, well capable of doing that. So um, with the Biden transition team, um, you know, I, I saw on the weekend who the three co-chairs were, so was heartened by that, including um, my former Yale colleague, Marcella Nunez-Smith, who is, you know, to me, the sort of first good sign was that we had somebody who was expert at, um, at health inequality, at racial health disparities, right? And moreover, let me just say, I mean, part of her work um, has, part of her work has been with communities of, um, uh, who suffer with genetic disease with sickle cell anemia. And um, one of the kind of metaphors for sickle cell anemia, because it's been up until fairly recently, you know, the first genetic disease discovered in 1910, but no real therapies and people who have it often suffer in pain for many years. And so it's also, as I write about in my Black Panther book, this sickle cell anemia has been this kind of metaphor, Keith Whaley writes this as well, for black pain and for the inability to kind of assuage, treat, care for, the neglect of um, Black pain and suffering. And so I think her expertise around health 
equity and and the fact that she really gets that people suffer, um, I think is very important for the leadership of the transition team. Um, certainly, uh, I hope that as the team builds out, I imagine there'll be subcommittees and other things that there'll be, I hope, you know, more social scientists at the table. I think that's actually uh, pretty important. There's a big kind of social political um, behavioral piece here. But I think to go back to the political economy piece, I mean, the fact that it's clearly being attacked. And if you looked at the, the sort of, um, uh, sort of bullet points of the initial platform around COVID-19 in response. I mean, it is a ecosystem systematic response, you know, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, test, trace and isolate, which we definitely need. Sure. Yes. Um, and supported isolation, but it is all of these other things as well. It's like, how are people going to pay for tests? Um, you know, you know, how is that related to the sort of economics of how people live their lives? So, um, that is the kind of strategic, I think, ecological approach to people's thriving that this is really needed. And so I'm, I'm greatly encouraged um, by what we're seeing so far. Well, if you're encouraged, then I'm encouraged. And I, I think that's, it's also refreshing to, to think that there will be some hard discussions going on, that it's not just um, an epidemiological understanding and a public health response. And those are important, but a, a richer understanding of what a public health response actually looks like, which will also include stimulus and will also include um, rent support and will also include a hundred other things, which I'm a little worried that opponents of this kind of legislation will say, well, that's not about, that's just you're trying to get social welfare in, into the discussion here. And, and I think the answer needs to be a forthright Absolutely. We need to have social right. welfare here in because that's right. where this all starts. Now, and I think, you know, yeah. our public health colleagues would say, um, you know, so many of them would say, you know, over the last nine months, what it has meant to be a public health expert has been like really reduced to, to tracing and modeling and these sorts of things. And, you know, that is a, a form of expertise that's always been about social welfare, you know, so they understand these things to be very much part of the enterprise of public health. And so let's, let's bring public health and its fullness to the table. That would be extraordinary. So you mentioned a minute ago uh, about getting a seat at the table for social science. That's a great uh, segue over to maybe just um, give you a chance to talk a little bit about your work at SSRC. And maybe if people aren't as familiar, you're the president of the Social Science Research Council. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that organization is and go a little further because uh, SSRC has been out of the gate on COVID-19 research seemingly you didn't hesitate, there was no hesitation. I mean, the publications were coming immediately and in full disclosure, I've been one of the people involved with some of those projects, but there have been a lot of projects. So kind of set the table for us with SSRC and your reaction to COVID. Yeah, so SSO, the Social Science Research Council is um, an international research nonprofit uh, established in 1923, um, you know, during, um, just on the edge of the progressive era. Um, and, you know, our work really is to, kind of convene and support uh, scholars and scholarship and also to increasingly, you know, have an outward facing um, part of our work as well. And, and the phrase that we use to describe that is mobilizing social science for the public good. So we really do understand that it's important for us, that those of us who are teachers, I mean, part of that is just sort of translating the work and helping people to understand what 
social science can uh, insights can um, can offer in any moment, um, but certainly um, in a moment like this. Um, and uh, we we do uh, we do research workshops. We you know support publications. We um, have lots of fellowships for scholars in various um, parts of their research trajectory. Um, and we also try to catalyze new work and new ideas. So we try to create spaces, incubation spaces for um, you know really important fields that are emerging, like the field of disaster studies um, that you work in, that is now well established. Um, uh, but certainly, uh, when you first started working with the Social Science Research Council, you and your colleagues, it was a much newer field, and you know, it's always been the work of the council to try to help support people that are really trying to to work across discipline and method to um, help us understand the world in better ways. So um, it's you know, it's interesting that it feels like we came out of the gate. I mean, as an organization. We started, uh, we launched our COVID-19 and the social sciences platform on April 24th. And so about a week ago, it was um, kind of six months in, but we, you know, we, it wasn't really clear what we were gonna do. I mean, in the past, um, the SSRC had done some very important kind of essay for uh, that very early on got scholars um, of, uh, you know, of renown thinking about uh, 9-11, thinking about Hurricane Katrina, thinking about um, uh, more recently the sort of spate of hurricanes that are not going to be leaving us anytime soon that, you know, decimate um, communities in the Gulf, Puerto Rico and elsewhere. So that had always been a response that we had. Um, in this moment, it felt inadequate for to the, the scale of what we were dealing with, you know, a global, you know, a pandemic, something on global scale. Um, but it also, there was a lot of writing around COVID-19 actually. So, you know, very early on, lots of people had hot takes and cold takes and long, you know, long form and short form. And because all of us were, you know, many of us who had the privilege of, of being able to be at home were sheltering in place and we're just trying to make sense and wrap our heads around all of this. So we wanted to make a contribution that was um, in keeping with, uh, you know, the rigor of the best social science that we try to support, um, that were not hot takes and that were really informed and really kind of rooted and, um, you know, people's expertise, um, but that also kind of met scholars where they were. And so it was also the case that because, uh, all, you know, they, it's an organization, a staff of nearly 80, and I think all of us were trying to figure out what role we could play variously in the organization. So the organization has at any given moment, something like two dozen or so, 20, 24 different types of programs, fellowships, projects, initiatives. Um, and this is the first time in the history of the organization that all of those programs and initiatives were working on a collective effort. And this is the COVID-19 and the social sciences platform. So part of the, I think the power of it and, and why I'm so proud of the effort is that it really engaged everyone and the entire organization in some way um, to, to work on this. Because the expertise that we could bring that was, you know, and our desire not to, to do a hot take meant that, you know, what would it mean to think about across all of our programs, what is this doing to the practice of research, right? Like every single program at the SSRC can say something about that, regardless of substantively, topically, uh, what the work is on. And so, um, you know, I wrote an essay called Society After Pandemic that launched um, the, the platform and um, it, you know, uh, I can, do you want me to tell you there's lots of pieces to it that I'm so proud of. So Please. we also were trying to, to think about how to do the work 
um, in a way that was kind of meeting the moment. And so we worked with um, partners, um, particularly the Luce Foundation, to fund some rapid research grants. Um, but we wanted to, on the one hand, so we had a lot of conversation internally about um, in a moment of such profound disruption, can scholars even do research? So we weren't, it wasn't even a foregone conclusion to us that people had the capacity given all of the stressors, you know, from, you know, sick and dying family members to children out of school, just all of it, all of it, all of it. Um, and so we kind of thought differently about how we would do these rapid, this rapid research grant. We made the application, like just the facts, ma'am, like all, only the things that you need to seriously be able to have rigorous peer review and evaluate a research project. We're not gonna ask for anything that's in the least bit extraneous. So we made them more streamlined. We asked, part of the application was, um, to about innovation and research. So, you know, we, you know, we basically stipulated most of us cannot do research in the way that we would typically want or like to do it. Um, but you've got expertise that can help us understand this moment. And so what, what might you do differently? How might you think about the way you do your research? Um, and what would be your model for doing that? Um, and, uh, you know, we promised a, a quicker turnaround than we're usually capable of doing. Um, and in the end, you know, we had 1,300 applications, which was um, the biggest pool that we've ever had um, in the history of the organization. And so peer review took a little bit longer than we'd hoped because we had to, to really galvanize um, uh, a lot more experts. But in the end, we funded nearly 65 projects. Um, we're going to announce in a week or so um, about 25 other projects, I think. Um, and people are doing the research. So there was the grant, you know, the bread and brother butter of what we do, which is support research and researchers. And then we tried to think about other ways to get people involved in the conversation. So we have one um, component that's called the time capsule for social researchers. And we, and this was, can we do a 15 minute interview with someone who doesn't think they can write something, doesn't, you know, isn't engaged in research right now in COVID-19, but has a whole kind of trajectory of work that's really important for us to know if we want to think about this moment. Like what, what are the kind of topics, issues that someone in five years, 15 years, 25 years must understand if they're going to understand um, the social science of, of COVID-19. And so we've been delighted to have Naila Swad Nasir, the president of the Spencer Foundation, um, uh, Matt Desmond, a sociologist at Princeton who wrote about evictions and the impact of COVID-19 on housing. Mm -hmm. um, president Swad Nasir wrote about the impact on education. Um, and, you know, we've had uh, Kelly Lytle Fernandez has written about the Black Lives Matter movement and its implications with activism around the, um, the killing of George Floyd and just police violence more generally. Um, and then we've had just the essay forum. So one that you uh, co-curate with Alexa uh, Dietrich at the SSRC on disaster. Um, we've done them on all the you know, things that we do really well, democracy, um, the region, regions in Africa, uh, on the practice of research, uh, religion. Um, and so that's been great to do as well. Um, we also supported some junior researchers. Um, so we've got a project, uh, part of the, the platform is um, 
called uh, Autoethnographies of a Pandemic. Uh, and we supported about two dozen um, Brooklyn College students who, because of this dis disruption, were kind of kicked out of their classrooms and you know lost their summer research experience. And um, they documented their experience, um, most of them, all, I think all of them living in New York City, most of mm -hmm. them living in Brooklyn, about what it was like. And so we have, you know, for themselves and for, you know, the kind of historical record, the accounts of, you know, about 20, you know, young people, many of them, you know, first generation immigrants, many of them first in their families to go to college. I think almost all of them are black and brown. Um, some of them are from Muslim communities, all, you know, writing about um, there's sort of graphic novels, there's kind of classic essays, there are more personal essays about what this experience has meant, um, and really elevating issues like um, what it meant for to have parents who were quote unquote essential workers, what it meant to have a parent who had um, was in experiencing mental health crisis, um, uh, what it meant for their work and, and what their, their prospects for their futures. I'm just putting up the links to make sure that people can, Thank can you. find these. Um, it's such a tremendous outpouring of, of work. And I, it, one of the things I wanna, um, thank you for that sort of overview of it. And um, I, sh I would be remiss if I didn't thank my co-curator, Alexa Dietrich, um, who's a genius and who she I had already, had already worked with on a, a risk and uncertainty project um, in the items essay series. And I thought that was interesting because in something you noted because um, it, this is not gonna surprise you what I'm about to say, but disaster research, I think when it's done well, it, it's, it's very temporally distributed. It, it takes on big chunks of time and it's geographically distributed as well. And I think COVID, it's met its moment with COVID because it's it's often challenging when you give that explanation of disaster but your your focus is 9/11 or Katrina you have to do a, a little extra analytical work to say okay how do i now think comparatively about the experience of poverty in louisiana and think about other parts of the world you can do it people do it it's important work but this is truly a global phenomenon so you don't have to do that work the the comparative dimension is manifest it's right there for you and i, I guess that's something i wanted to follow up with and if people aren't aware of the Katrina work, the Katrina Understanding Katrina series that SSRDC did in 2006, it was really important at its time. Um, it was important because it came out quickly and also because it had very well established scholars in it, like some of the most well established scholars, and it had graduate students in it. It, it had people at different stages of there, and some people who left didn't follow up with Katrina work. But that moment, it, it was important to them and they wrote about it. And I think that was important too, to, to participate in some of this work. You're not, you don't have to say, hey, I'm gonna work on COVID-19 for the rest of my career, right? Right, right. One thing I would say what we did, you know, with the, the Chancing the Storm, which is some of the disaster and risk work that you worked on with the um, understanding Katrina and 9-11 is place them in the COVID platform. Um, you know, there, because so much of our work at the Social Science Research Council is often project-based, um, you know, it might start with a series of grants and it might, you know, in the case of the Katrina work, there was a series of published uh, publications. I mean, one of them, I think, um, uh, that was just published in the last couple of years. And so, there's a tendency, I think, in the organization to sort of say that project's over. But of course, the 
implications of Katrina and of 9-11, I mean, we will be living with them forever. Sure. Um, and so, uh, so I really kind of, you know, part of what we did here is also dust them off and take their, you know, they should no longer be archived. None of this work should be archived ever again. I mean, it really should be kind of living conversation. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if um, someone wants to contribute to the Katrina, understanding Katrina or to the COVID-19 in a few years time, you know, I think that should be okay and actually be encouraged. One thing I would say about the Katrina work that I, I would be, that, that chagrins me a little bit is that you know, we didn't have people from the community writing about that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think in our 9-11 work, we were, um, you know, we didn't have people who were being, you know, scapegoated, harassed for being Muslims um, contribute to to what that conversation, uh, to that conversation. So um, we have uh, tried to be more kind of, uh, to, to, to not make those mistakes again and more overbeat more, I think, forward looking and leading and the sort of stakeholders who are the entire world indeed, um, that are experiencing, uh, who are, who have access to the, to the platform and can, um, can share their experiences. Let's talk about that a little bit. Is that a reflection of just um, a maturity of the platform? That is people just getting more and more comfortable with what's possible in the digital space so that you could include, um, you know, you don't have to look at somebody's CV and say, oh, they've written three peer-reviewed monographs and so they can now publish online. But they actually use the medium and with the potential that it has. That's maybe one possibility, but another possibility has to do with the project areas that SSRC has grown out into, particularly around democratization, so that it, would, it wouldn't make sense to write about COVID and not also think about it as a moment that forces us to reflect on who gets to say what COVID is. It doesn't have to be either or, but I'm curious about that that evolution. I think it's, I think it's, you know, part of it is that, you know, part of what the SSRC is, you know, the support of scholars and scholarship and research is, um, you know, kind of intersecting networks. Um, mm -hmm. And so when, uh, you know, something like COVID-19 emerges and you have already well-established networks of experts on disaster research, on democratization and its discontents, um, on religion in the public sphere, um, then all, you know, that those networks can be mobilized um, in this way while also bringing new voices to the table. So it's been really important for us to have people writing about the experience of COVID-19 in Indian country. It's been very important for us to have, to me in particular, to have, you know, scholars from, you know, um, from Sub-Saharan Africa writing about their hopes that this would not, you know, that COVID-19 won't create more opportunities for extractive research practices on the parts mm -hmm. of Western scholars. Like this is all a part of the conversation. Um, and it's a necessary, you know, part of the conversation. But also, you know, some of the uh, the work that we published was some of the first to sort of to say the early essays, including um, uh, Dr. Duncan Omanga, who's a member of the staff um, at the SSRC, that COVID-19 wasn't quite happening in the same way on the continent of Africa and a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. But one of them is that there's infrastructure from past pandemics or from past epidemics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, that's that's helpful, even as we know, in places, you know, in other places like South Africa, for example, there have been, um, you know, evidence of uh, kind of authoritarian turn. Um, not That's not the only place, of course, being uh, that COVID-19 sort of justifying that kind of authoritarian turn. So 
we've been able to sort of take these vast and actually longstanding. I mean, it does mean something for an organization to be around for a hundred years, or in this case, you know, to have not only um, a breadth of networks, but generations of scholars. Uh, um, but also we've been trying to, you know, some graduate students have um, published, you have, you know, new and pertinent work, um, you know, more junior scholars, um, James Jones um, did one of our time capsule interviews, who's finishing a book um, on, uh, inequality on Capitol Hill. So he's been wa writing about an employment inequality on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I think allowed us a real, you know, a, a sort of vantage on what it meant to be an essential worker on the Hill, um, where you had lawmakers refusing to wear masks up until even fairly recently, you know, um, and and to be the, the sort of staff that's supposed to go and, you know, clean up the White House press room, knowing that no one on the White House staff, you know, and in the eyes, you know, is is wearing masks or taking any precautions mm -hmm. or to clean before the hearings that we're having to, you know, determine that effectively we're not going to extend a social safety net to people who need it. You know, folks have to, uh, you know, go in and, and clean uh, clean those congressional hearing rooms. And so that was important to see and hear and think through as well. Yeah. Just to also reflecting on your saying that it, some of these projects that you're sponsoring right now are sort of they're aimed at um, not at scholars, autoethnographic kind of kind of projects. So you're you're sort of building up a, a research archive here as well. And one yes. might argue that some of these essays and the ones that I've have enjoyed, um, many of them seem to be written in a way where the the authors are authoritative in the sense that they know their stuff. But the authors are also taking chances in the sense that they're writing in the midst of a disaster with the awareness that much of what's being said right now is subject to revision later. So we're making the record. Yes, that's exactly right. And I have to say, um, you know, my, my colleague, Ron Casimer, who's the vice president for, for, um, of programs at the SSRC, really came in about four, uh, I think maybe four or five years ago and, and you know, really helped to revamp uh, the you know the, the our virtual um, blogs and essay fora um, and so and we've got just an incredible team um, uh, uh, who communications team who've been you know they're they're also really well edited I mean they're edited sometimes two three and four times um, not always with the mind of knowing that the gestures are sometimes speculative I mean some of the pieces have data in them and their first cuts at people's data and first, you know, they're sometimes a people's first try at interpreting what they're seeing. Um, but sometimes, as you say, uh, they're a lot more speculative, but they're always expertly edited and just, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, incredibly proud of the team at SSRC for, you know, at sometimes we had, you know, dozens of them kind of sitting in the queue um, waiting to be edited. They just, the team has just worked um, incredibly hard, but I think, it is an attempt to create an archive. I mean, I think part of the archive, so, you know, there's the autoethnographies archive, I think, which is what was it like to be a young person in Brooklyn while this was happening? And you couldn't go to school and you're worried about your parents uh, and people are dying all around you. And maybe you're living, you know, multi-generationally. Um, you know, we don't really have those voices. So, so that will truly be an archive. And what was it like to, you know, one of the 
the pieces that um, in the essay for it is about, as I mentioned to you, we've got a kind of vertical that's about what is the practice of research after COVID-19? And, you know, so one of the, the essays in there was about emotion and about doing research and being sad mm-hmm. um, and, and how, you know, and sort of bringing to the fore what it is like to endeavor to do research at a moment like this. Um, and to be honest about that um, in a quite profound way. Um, so I think it, that helps all of us, but that's also, I think, an important archive as well. Um, so, yeah. I think that's, to me, one of the more exciting aspects of it too, which is that, um, as you said, there, there are so many reasons that people can't do their research right now, or they will do some improvised version of what they might be planning to do. So to capture what is possible in this moment, and then as you say, you know, COVID-19, first of all, the pandemic's not ending anytime soon, but, but as a provocation to research is not ending anytime soon either. It opens the possibility that you'll have scholars who'll be able to work at multiple junctures in these same frames. And I think that's really important too. You know, this idea that the author and the researcher is not a, monolith. We're, we are yes. changing. Yes. It used to not be, you would not say that at all. I mean, in the older days of social sciences to admit any sort of weakness of the social scientist or to that the social scientist even existed in the midst of their research was a sin. Right. But, if you didn't have the, the eye of God from above, you know, yes. Well, not only have we made that turn, but you're opening the possibility here that that, that itself is a crucial dimension of scrutiny of the work, topic selection. Uh, method selection, and then how that will change over a period of time in this disaster is really important, I think. I think so. And I think it's also been important to really live out the kind of civic mission of the organization to help people understand in a way that doesn't have, have paywalls. I mean, I, you know, there's been some, you know, we've been, there's been a very positive reaction, including some a um, little bit of press coverage of the work. And at one point I was talking to a reporter and she you know, was going in and looking at all of the different essay verticals and all of the facets of the platform. And she said, is all of this free? Um, You know, she couldn't, she she said it twice, actually. She couldn't kind of quite wrap her mind around all of these resources. And, you know, it is meant to be for social scientists and social science community, but not that community only. And, you know, it also is the case that all of us, from historians to anthropologists to economists, live in communities, you know? And so the work that we do is about us and our research, but it's also about those who are around us. And so it's been, you know, we've done not a lot of webinars. I don't feel like that is our kind of value add for the conversation, you know, there's a, you know, we've got you um, who's on, you know, program number 167, is that what I heard? Uh, um, 166, yeah. 166, so, you know, leave to those who are expert in this at doing that. But, you know, we, but there is, has been an attempt to, uh, you know, out of our anxieties of democracy program, help people think about the elections, um, uh, do more kind of work that's in the public sphere. We have a partnership with the Brooklyn Center for History. So we've been doing events with them for um, a couple of years now. Um, we're doing some uh, conversations on reimagining institutions with Sage Publishing. So we did one on on schools, um, uh, you know, um, about a, about two weeks ago. Um, and so we also want the work to um, to be of benefit and, and, and to offer illumination and some kind of understanding um, to 
as wide a swath of people as we can. Just to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking with Alondra Nelson today, the president of the Social Science Research Council. And we're almost up on time, but um, I want to sneak one last question in, which is that somehow in the midst of all of this as well, you are the president of 4S, the Society for Social Studies. President-elect. President-elect. President elect, right? Um, and so in, in the midst of, first of all, that's a dynamic organization. It's a multidisciplinary organization. It's a fascinating group of scholars. Uh, it's international. And somehow you're gonna come in and, and keep it going and in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this pandemic? Well, we'll see. I mean, again, president-elect, so I've got a year or more before it actually, you know, I become uh, the, the president of the organization. Um, you know, it, it, there are ways in which it's very similar to the SSRC. I mean, the SSRC is not a professional society, of course, but, um, you know, all of the things that you identify, a dynamic organization, an international organization, a multidisciplinary organization. Um, so, you know, in some ways there are some real kind of synergies and parallels there. But the forest actually has been really important to me as a scholar. So it was really one of the first places um, I went as a graduate student and sort of felt like I had found my people, you know? So I had this project that was, you know, yes, about the Black Panther Party, so I could go to, uh, you know, maybe the American Studies Association or a SALA um, uh, to sort of talk about sort of the history of the Black Panther Party as a movement. Um, and then maybe I could go to the American, you know, American Public Health Association to talk about the Black Panther Party doing health work. But then there was that piece of me that wanted to talk about the transfer of technology that made it possible for a grassroots organization to do genetic testing in 1969. Like, what is that madness and how do we account for that? And it was really, you know, going to the 4S where people were just like, that is interesting. And I was like, you think that's, you know, so to me, it's always been an incredible, incredibly special place and, and where you could find, um, like-minded folks, but I, you know, so I, I hope in my time that we'll be able to do a few things. One is I wanna really take seriously what the canon for STS is. Um, and we're trying to do a little bit of this in the science, knowledge and technology section um, of the American um, Sociological Association. So what does it mean to take W.B. Du Bois seriously as a scholar of science and technology studies mm -hmm. um, who did it critically, who was thinking critically about race and racialization and science and, and you know, and medicine. Um, what does it mean to take, you know, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who, you know, part of her anti-lynching crusade was effectively gathering data and analyzing data to make the case um, about extrajudicial police violence. So I think it's time for kind of some new, new conversations about the canon, but I also think it's time to really, um, for 4S to really sort of take its place in public life and public discourse. And so, so much of the conversations that we're having about modeling, about etiology mm -hmm. of disease and COVID-19, I mean, these are, you know, who can one trust to tell you the best information, what's going on with trust and expertise. These are all kind of classic science and technology, sociology of science questions. And, um, and you know, of course, a lot around big tech and big data and all of that. and. And more, one in more, uh, more than one instance, there's been, uh, you know, a, a kind of public figure from, particularly from the tech space or, you know, the the sort of critical digital studies space, saying, if only we had, you know, sociologists and historians thinking about science and technology. Well, 
not only do you, you have this organization of, you know, thousands of people all over the world who like, that's their expertise. And I think, you know, it's going to be, I think, important for us to get that work out in the world, I think, so people really see um, that there's this resource there that I think is being underutilized. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I wanna thank my guest today, Alondra Nelson, president of SSRC and president-elect of 4S. Um, for this time today, really appreciate um, all that you're doing at SSRC and, and um, all of the thinking and, and research that you're supporting on COVID-19. Thanks for joining me today, Alondra. I'm glad to be with you. And I just want to say just a tremendous thank you to my entire team at the SSRC who's been working so hard over the last seven months. I am just incredibly proud and honored to work with them every day. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. That's very well said. Thanks again for your time. Everybody stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.